Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Have you sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case? Can I tell you a secret? That you man, Kevin. What happened? Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective, the final episode. I am Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Today we are talking about the series finale, season three, season finale, I should say. Who knows what's going to happen? Called Now Am Found, directed by Daniel Sackheim, written by Nick Pizzolatto. Then we're also going to sort of more broadly talk about our season three feelings uh, generally. But yeah, this is it. We are wrapping up True Detective. And I just want to, you know, a quick note before we get into all of that. Um, I want to note that next, what are we doing next, Richard? What what comes after True Detective? I won't do that more, more of that, but I know if you do any more, we have to pay yeah. Uh, yeah. a royalty to Ramin Javadi. Anyway, that, that of course is the famous opening theme song to Fuller House. Yep, here we go. It's it's Richard's fave, my fave too. The story of the the Fuller. Uh, no, anyway, uh, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones, which yeah. is just sl- I mean. sli- slightly <laughs> less dramatic than Fuller House. Um. And yeah, so, so we are doing a fun rewatch project where we're going to be going through our favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. We have some fun interviews lined up and all of that's going to be leading up into our coverage of the final season of Game of Thrones. So that's starting next week. 
Uh, the first episode should drop on March 4th. So, you know, don't unsubscribe as soon as we finish talking here. We got more to say. Um, before we, we get into this episode, now I'm found. I wanted to hit a few emails we got. You can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We've had some great emails around True Detective. This first one I'm going to read is one of my favorite kind of podcast feedback emails, and that is uh, an expert speaking to something that I know nothing about. Oh, also, really quickly, I got a, I got a few disgruntled emails and tweets from people who noted that I have been saying possibly this entire time that there is a 15 year difference between 1990 and 2015, when obviously there's a 25 year difference. Mm-hmm. My explanation for this is that, uh, maybe I just didn't want to feel as old as I actually am or whatever it is. But, um, anyway, I apologize for all the many, many times I, I said 15 years when I met 25 years. I do that all the time. I'm like, yeah, so it was like 96. So it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, yesterday. No. I think Richard, you're not 25 anymore. <laughs> What? Um, anyway, okay. So this one comes from, uh, Bill in the Pacific Northwest, or I should possibly say, uh, Dr. Bill, because, uh, he writes in, as someone who's enjoyed much about the season, the lithium plot point in the finale was disappointing. Uh, I'm a physician and a resident in psychiatry. Part of my job is prescribing lithium. Lithium doesn't scramble your memories or make you forget who you are. Uh, it is toxic when you take too much, but the problems People taking lithium encounter when their lithium levels are too high are usually things like kidney problems, thyroid problems, or temporary confusion. Another plot hole related to lithium is that any psychiatrist worth their salt will be checking their patient's lithium blood levels on a regular basis. Among other things, this would inform the psychiatrist if a patient wasn't taking their lithium so that, that she could use it to scramble her kidnapped fake daughter's memories. It's generally a bad idea to continue prescribing large quantities of medication to someone very ill or suicidal, especially if you have reason to believe they're not taking their meds so that they can stockpile them. And then Bill did like a little PS where he's like, if you decide not to include my letter, I hope you can include a comment about lithium from another health professional. It's an important medication for treating bipolar disorder and other mental health disorders. And I think it's unfortunate that this show casts such a poor light on an important treatment. Um, so I, I like two things. One, to Will's second part about, you know, the fact that Isabel Hoyt wouldn't have an endless supply of lithium uh, to drug poor little Julie in in that pink room for a decade. That point, I would just say, like, it seemed like the Hoyts could get whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. So she wanted to, like, abuse, uh, you know, I'm sure there was some corrupt doctor in Arkansas who would just continue writing her lithium prescriptions if she wanted them. So, yeah, that, I mean, I can't yeah. comment really on this because as a Scientologist, I don't obviously believe in <laughs> any psychi- psychiatry or psychiatric treatment. So, you know. <laughs> Right, right. Um, Richard's kidding. We support psychiatry on this podcast. Um, the- <laughs> deeply, personally. <laughs> yeah, both, both of us personally. Um, but, uh, but to your first point, I, I think that that's, that's a fair critique that maybe this isn't exactly what lithium would do to poor Julie. But though, of course, there was a lot of other abuse going on around that and a lot of other like sort of grooming and things happening to, to Julie Purcell. So, but, but I hear you about, about not wanting people to have a stigma around the use of lithium. All right. And then this email comes from Chris who says, um, you know, we're going to talk about this very final scene that happens. That seems a little surreal that closes out the episode. Uh, but Chris wrote in, 
Uh, I wonder if the Vietnam scene is meant to show that Hayes has psychologically broken through to the problems that have plagued him since the war. There are several moments where the timelines blend, where Hayes appears to have an awareness of the presence of a future or past self. This may be interpreted as a cinematic representation of a psychological process of Hayes dealing with the ghosts of the past. The final scene is the ultimate stage in the process. The way he looks behind may indicate he is stirred by the spirits of his future and is now ready to confront those traumatic years. I love love this um take from chris and i will just say that like my feeling uh, you know i wrote a piece on vf about one possibility for the interpretation of the finale but more importantly i think this is a kind of finale um that leaves the ending up to a lot of interpretation and that is personally my favorite kind of finale um but i know uh it can frustrate people richard do you have any thoughts on on this yeah, I mean, I think we can get into it into the in the in larger episode analysis, but like, I think those final two scenes are mm, obviously memories of a sort, but I think they're sort of indicating a further passage. Yes, possibly. I think that's also a fair interpretation. Anyway, point being, like, whatever's happening, I don't think we're supposed to take literally, which I don't think Chris is saying we should take it literally either. It's it's some sort of breakthrough or journey or progression or something. And so that's, you know, I think interesting. Um, and then this final email comes from Joey. Joey writes in... Uh, if True Detective wants to gain more female viewers, they damn well need to hire female writers. Why? Because you don't just introduce us to a character like Amelia with the albeit little character development killer off, but not allow us the understanding to understand the way in which she passed. It's just cruel. It leaves us with no closure. The character of Wayne's daughter, Becca, also having made a choice not to return to her hometown after such a long absence, which was constructed to seem like she had a contentious relationship somehow with her father was misleading to the viewer. At least for me, it made me think that perhaps she blamed Wayne for Amelia's death. Although neither of these plot points fall into the red herring category, they are both emotional pulls for the viewer where we have invested time and interest, especially because we rarely see women play the roles these two characters did in this series. We deserve the payoff of understanding something which seems to evade most male writers when it comes to these male dominated leads in crime dramas. Because a lot of step aside, let women completely create the next season from every angle. Wouldn't that be interesting to watch? Question mark. Frustrated in Oakland, comma, Joey. Okay. So um, I think we can get into the use of Amelia in this finale. I will say, you know, I'm, I'm, Nick Pizzolatto does not me, need me to defend him in any way. And I don't know that that's necessarily what I'm here for, but I will say that there was a conflict behind the scenes. This we know about the runtime of this finale. Um, I believe Nick Pizzolatto wanted it to be, I think, a full two hours. It wound up being, I think, what, 80 minutes, 90 minutes, something like that? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Um, and so what something Nick Pizzolatto has been doing all season is answering fan questions on his Instagram account. We, you know, he's like, I'm not talking to the press, um, perhaps like burned from season two or whatever, but he has been very free and vocal, um, in his Instagram account comments. And one of the things that he wrote after the finale is that, um, he wanted to have a scene more. There was more going to be more stuff about like the life Amelia and Wayne built together after he decided to retire from the forest in the nineties. There was going to be a scene about Amelia's passing, which was like peaceful. There was nothing fishy about it. And then more information about Becca and Wayne. All of that that you're frustrated is missing, Joey, was supposed to be in the finale. Um, I don't know that Nick like gets full credit for that um, because, you know, that was cut and other things were left in. 
you know, so that, you know, that just shows like priorities. But I think that uh, Nick Pizzolatto would agree with this listener um, and anyone else who said they wanted more from Amelia and more from Becca. I think he, it really frustrated him, I think, to have to cut it, feel like he had to cut it. So, um, all right. You know, maybe, maybe he wanted a, like, maybe he felt like he needed a whole other episode basically to tell this story and HBO gave him a certain episode order and he tried to get away with a longer finale and it didn't end, wind up working out. So we got the show that we got. All right. Um, we're not going to do our usual thing, which is jump around decade by decade, especially since, um, there's so much blurring the lines between decades in this uh, episode. But, um, I guess, you know, should we, should we make clear the facts of the Julie Purcell case, Richard, for the listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay. pretty much what we had sussed out last week. I guess we weren't sure, uh, how much, Isabel's dad Hoyt knew about it, mm-hmm. um, which it kind of seems like he knows only a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was pretty much like she lost her son, her daughter, um, you know, sort of be- befriended, I guess you could call it that groomed, um, the Purcell kids, particularly Julie. There was an accident where Will died. The man with one eye. Oh, well, I guess that was kind of a surprise about him. Oh, that he actually cared for Julie. That he tried to free her. sort of like a villainous. Yeah, I tried to free her. Yeah. So there was a weird like Munchausen. So once Julie got to the pink room or the castle or whatever she was calling it, um, there was a weird sort of Munchausen by proxy thing that was happening where uh, Isabel was feeding her lithium, which, you know, again, that emailer uh, mentioned. Um, And eventually, though, Julie kind of broke out of it. And then when she left, Isabel distraught, killed herself, and the man with one eye, um, Junius, has spent, well, spent the better part of a decade trying to find her. Uh, and then in 1997, I think he said, yeah, he, he found the nunnery, uh, the convent, and they said, oh, no, she died of AIDS. Right, which we then found out as a second twist in the episode. I mean, so... You know, that all confirmed a lot of what we talked about. I agree with you. I don't think Hoyt knew very much. He talked about triage. Uh, so basically like Isabel's dead. Um, you know, Julie's escaped and Hoyt is just trying to make sure his daughter's name isn't dragged through the mud after she's dead. And this is why he's threatening Wayne and why Wayne sort of drops everything in 1990. Um, yeah. I thought and that Hoyt was, ha- yeah. Hoyt Go has ahead. this great pizzolato line where I, I, I don't remember it word for word, but it was something like, do I look like a man who knows a lot or something like that? You know, that, that's what, um, what Hoyt says to Wayne, you know, when they have their kind of confrontation on the cliff. Um, and it was just like another kind of sad, broken down drunk man, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, you know, like trying to, I don't know, shuffle through the world. Um, albeit, you know, much more violently than, than others. I really liked this, um, this stuff from Michael Rooker. I, I, I anticipated that I would, and it was even like a lighter touch than I expected. And, uh, you know, a, a smaller part of the episode than I expected. It's just sort of like, is Hoyt the big bad? No, I wouldn't really call him that. And I don't know that I would really call anyone like the, you know, the big bad of the season is like a, an emotionally damaged suicidal woman you know like that's it's hard to sort of pin something uh, you know something that i think a lot of people have been frustrated about i know a lot of true detective sort of uh, people have been comment writing about the season um they really fell for that whole like child trafficking red herring 
part of the season. And so yeah. the fact that this wasn't like such a massive, wide ranging connects back to season one conspiracy was frustrating, disappointing for them. But I, I think what you and I had talked about all season was like, that's not really quite what True Detective does. It's what True Detective, you know, there was like a sort of larger ring in season one, but like we talked about that that isn't really where it ever heads. Um, well, it's about it systems, but it's also about yeah. people, you know, and I think this season in particular, and I think it's why I responded to it uh, as strong as I did and others, you know, I've spoken to about it is that like, this is a story, this is a, a deeply kind of like, a, like, I mean, it's a character study. It's a sort of two hander with, with, um, with Roland in there. Um, but it's, you know, it's about people kind of coming to grips with regret and the past, which I think could apply not just to our, you know, uh, to Wayne, but also to Hoyt, to Isabel, to, uh, Amelia, to anybody really. Um, and, and trying to kind of reach for some sort of sense of peace, I guess. Um, and, uh, I think that, you know, can you achieve that while also telling a story about a, a very, you know, a kind of network of pedophiles? Yeah, of course you can. Um, to some extent, the first season did. Um, but I, I actually really appreciate that um, the con- conclusion of this was less sensational than that. It was just broken people doing bad accidental things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And like, What's interesting to me about what so much of this episode devotes time to is these, these long conversations between Amelia and Wayne and their relationship and, and these moments in Wayne's life where he could have chosen not to connect, not connecting with her, uh, and with the world was the easy thing to do. And he chose the harder thing to do, which is to connect, you know, so you get that 1980 fight where, you know, he, unfairly blames her for losing his job you know they yell at each other and stuff like that and then they get this sort of like makeup we get this makeup conversation in the end where he talks about how he wants to marry her and stuff like that and then we get a, a similar conversation in the 90s where she's like do we even want to go forward what are we without this case to talk about all of this and they decide to go for you know he decides to leave everything behind and and sort of do what's good the best for their family and become a security guard at a university or whatever you know um head of security what have you and she goes back to teaching and it's just sort of like they chose each other rather than um you know and that's we talked about a season one moment that we really liked which is sort of a post hospital looking up at the stars and talking about whether the light was winning over the dark and i and i feel like each time that Wayne makes these decisions and these conversations with Amelia, he's choosing the light, you know, and then in the end, the connection that he makes because Amelia is not there in 2015, 25 years later after uh, 1990 uh, is to connect with Becca, which is something that he's been wanting to do all season. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I think that that is great. So, yeah. And I think that like there could be a sort of criticism to, this the way this, this this season concludes in that like you know this is about people choosing to not dwell in the trauma of their lives or of the world and making a decision to to try to exist past it or 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 live you know not sort of so intensely you know just staring right at the kind of dark void at the center of things you know um and and that's not always a choice sometimes that's not a choice we can make um, because of things that have happened to us or the way that our brains are wired. 
Um, you know, so I think that the show was careful to show at the very last scene that, like, Wayne could, it's still some, in some ways in that jungle, even though he made, tried to make over the course of his life efforts to get out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's impossible. And I think that in that, in some ways, like, that makes Julie the kind of, like, she's the one who, you know, while experiencing a lot of pain, you know, for her, a lot of her childhood and adolescence, like, she's the one who arrives at a place of, um, of kind of peace, uh, you know, because she's sort of, she had a lot of the, I don't know, there was a lot done to her, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so she was able to maybe, um, I don't know, she had less to atone for, I guess, you know? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that uh, interpretation of the final shot. And we should talk about the like the other twist of this episode is that, you know, Julie did not die of AIDS in 1997. As we noted in episode six, um, Mike Ardwan, her like childhood friend was doing landscaping around the nunnery. And like, this is exactly what like, a lot of people noticed that Mike was there. Some people who were more on the conspiracy theory side of this season were like, oh, he's there because he's like a groomer for pedophiles and he like blah, blah, blah. And is, he's going out and getting everyone. I think that's because, you know, uh, the gardener in season one was complicit and everything. I think that's like an okay connection to make. Um, but I think we were always on the track of like, you know, if he saw her there, you know, perhaps she's like with him and safe. And that's what ended up exactly happening is like, they claim she died of a of HIV uh, AIDS in 95, I think it was. And uh, in fact, you know, she was hiding from the world with him. Uh, they have a daughter named Lucy. They have a very cute garden. And in the end, you know, like Wayne goes, Wayne has this third act revelation about this, which is maybe one of my least favorite parts of the episode. Actually, I quite liked this finale, but like, I didn't mind Amelia coming to visit him and sort of like making the connections for him. I did mind him like picking up the book exactly at the place where he needed. And it was like about Mike in the book, you yeah, know, like that it was a little convenient. Yeah. yeah. That was the only part where I was like, I know. Um, but anyway, Amelia goes to Amelia shows up, helps him make those connections. He goes and he finds them. And right when he finds them, my interpretation at least is that he gets, uh, confused again where he is. He doesn't remember why he's there. And so her secret remains safe in this episode. Like his kids come and pick him up. He does give the address to Henry. Henry does put it in his pocket. So it's possible that his son would like pursue that. Um, but for now, like Julie's still hidden from the world. There's another possibility, um, you know, that some people have had where like Wayne does know where he is. Not like that he's pretending to be confused the whole time, but like that there is a moment somewhere in this episode where he realizes that he talked to an older Julie and knows that she's safe. My interpretation is like, it's enough for his brain to sort of have figured it out that he doesn't even need to have been there really uh mentally for that conversation uh what do you, yeah. what do you think richard yeah i mean i would hate to give a sort of to anthropomorphize a disease like alzheimer's or dementia but it's almost as if the disease is sort of like no you've had like it's enough like you don't like, you don't need to be to go to see her like let her be you know um and so it sort of almost kicks in like maybe it's some sort of um i mean this is not how the disease works but maybe in the sort of like artistic world of nick pizzolato in the show like a defense mechanism, yeah, of a, yeah. Of a sort, yeah, a sort of a sort of moral conscience coming coming through and and sort of turning you know his memory off because it didn't want uh, him to sort of spoil this this thing that Julie has found you know very hard fought found for herself. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I think you're wise to sort of be like let let us be very clear. We're not saying that this is how dementia works, but I think, you know, the idea of no of noticing when Wayne forgets things and when he doesn't and what the writerly intent behind that might be is I think that's fair, you know. Um the other character main character that we want to talk about this episode of course is Roland where my interpretation is every time that you know, in every stage where we see Wayne making the choice to connect, we see Roland either making the choice or feeling like the choice is made for him to kind of not connect. So like in the 80s, you know, or I think it's in the 90s where Wayne says something like, I got a family to think about. And uh or or maybe maybe it's in the 80s and Wayne's like, I have to think about her or something like that. And Roland says something like, oh, how nice for you. It's like so bitter. Like, I don't have that. So, oh, how nice for you. It must be in 1990 when he says that. We get this tremendous Steven Dorff scene where he goes, you know, Roland goes to the bar, incites these bikers to beat him up, goes, sits outside, cries, drinks some whiskey, and then connects with the dog. And we know that, like, for years, like, Roland removes himself from society, lives alone in the woods, and his only connection is with dogs. So, like, if, you know, if we want to say that Wayne makes these choices over and over again to connect with Amelia, et cetera, et cetera, Roland retreats uh, instead until the end when he has this, like, sort of healing uh, connection with Wayne. So, um, I, you know, I think that, I think that's the point of that thread, um, would be my take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. Roland, I, what, what a great, interesting character that kept going a different direction than I expected him to. Um, you know, like he could have been an antagonist. He could have been more of a hard ass, but like he just genuinely like really, really just wanted, you know, like Wayne's, um, friendship, you know, yeah. or companionship. And, you know, I think maybe you could read him like weeping and hugging the dog, like as kind of like, maybe there was a kind of love there beyond friendship. I don't know, but I don't really think we need to kind of extrapolate. Like, I just think it was such a well done thing. And then I also love the image of Roland or driving up in, with the puppy on his lap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Really solid. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think he's like, he's walking down the deck in these like, sunglasses that my grandpa definitely wore at some point in his life. So, uh, yeah, his, his old man style is pretty, pretty on fleek. Uh, yeah. So, so that's the thing with Roland. I don't know that I needed the like dog meat cute. That's the only thing that I have resistance on. Um, but other people seem to really have liked that, but I did love the idea of this guy going up into a bar and just like making people hurt him looking for that punishment that that junius is looking for uh in 2015 when he like asked them to punish him and they're like no we'll leave this gun but you get to do that for yourself like that's on you buddy sort of thing so um the question of what amelia knows and when she knew it that's something i was asked on twitter my feeling is that she didn't know any more than what she wrote in the book in 1990 um, I think Daniel Sackheim said to me when he talked to, to me for the podcast last week that this ghostly apparition of her in this, in the study, uh, I think he called it like, um, the, the remnant of like the true detective that's still in Wayne. It sort of materializes in the form of Amelia in that scene. She's the one able to still like detect and make the connections. And so, it, you know, it's just an extension of himself. Um, yeah, which I, which I quite like. And then we should talk about this final moment on the porch. Wayne is surrounded by 
Henry and Becca and Henry's wife and the kids, the kids biking down the street in the Will and Julie sort of set up and Roland is there and his dog is there and every, everyone's happy. And then we sort of flash into his eyeball and we get the scene in the bar of, of, uh, Amelia and Wayne in the 1980s sort of figuring out that they're going to make a life together. Then we watch them exit the bar to a golden bright light. Uh, and then we flash to the jungle of Vietnam. I wrote a piece on VF about, you know, I looked at the closing shot of Jacob's Ladder, which we've already talked about on this podcast, and it is like pretty identical, close to that. Like in that at the end of Jacob's Ladder, Tim Robbins' character, Jacob, ascends a staircase with his son, like leading by the hand into this golden light that fills the screen. And then you flash to him dead on the table in Vietnam. So I think no matter what your interpretation of what is actually going on with Wayne, um, this final sequence is a visual homage to Jacob's Ladder. That I think that that is without question. Uh, does this mean that Wayne was dead the whole time? Not necessarily. Possibly not necessarily, but like this idea that like he never got out of the jungle or this idea that he is finally ready to get out of the jungle or, you know, the, the metaphorical jungle of, of war trauma. Um, or the idea that Richard alluded to earlier, which is like, this is Wayne dying on that porch. Like he is a chief piece and can go be with Amelia now. Yeah. Very um, rose at the end of Titanic, meaning right. again at the top of the stairs, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice when they walk out of the bar, the door opens and it's just like a white, it's just white. Yeah. Light. I mean, which is like happens when you, sometimes when you open a dark, you know, room in, into the daylight, like it's, it's not like necessarily like heaven, but like, I think aesthetically that's there very much for a reason. My, my first interpret, like when I was watching it for the first time, I was like, Oh, he's dead. He's died. Like when he left the bar, they go to this golden line. I was like, oh, okay, that's him. You know, that's him going to join Amelia in heaven sort of thing or, or whatever you want to call the afterlife. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q and a, but on wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, then the, the jungle coda, though, sort of is what throws a question mark on that yeah. for me. Yeah. So, um, and I don't mind that. Once again, I don't mind that different people have different interpretations and, and everyone's interpretation sort of satisfies me in some way. So, you know, um, I will point out again that, um, Nick Pizzolatto has said before that season two of the season of the series was in his mind a story about four characters who were already dead and just pro, pro in the, process of like figuring that out for themselves um in the way that jacob's ladder the film is uh so it's possible that's what he was doing once again with this that like wayne was already dead like wayne died in the jungle in vietnam and this is 
this whole case was him sort of figuring out how to process that. Uh, I, I'm not entirely enamored of that, but I'm not on, I don't hate that interpretation. I, you know, there's just like a lot of possibilities. And once again, I just, I like that at least as far as I've seen, Pizzolatto hasn't said one way or another what it is. And I, I don't mind that at all. So. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the final scene also reminded me of, um, if, if our listeners have not seen it, uh, a movie from a couple of years ago, uh, they really should call the, the Lost City of Z, uh, which is a James Gray film about Amazon exploration, Percy Fawcett in, in the, uh, turn of the century. Um, and I won't spoil anything, but the final shot of that film is very, very similar in some ways, uh, to the final shot of this season. And I don't know exactly what it means, but I love the pensive note it lands on because like we've been, it's a show about reaching back into the past, but that's reaching even further back into the past. So maybe it's, it's meant as a sort of origin, like here's the beginning of all of this, or maybe it's meant more metaphysically. I don't know, but like, I love that it provoked that kind of, um, that kind of questioning. And I think, you know, I think I said it way back at the early part of the season. Like I, I really, I like when the show goes just that little bit are, you know, sort of not supernatural exactly, but like, but metaphysical, but metaphysical, more, yeah. more sort of, you know, dreamy and, and abstract, I guess. Um, and I, I, I like that it ended on that note rather than just the simple, um, note on the porch or even the scene in the bar. Yeah. I, I really, I really like that. Um, one thing we should notice that this, like, the music that plays over the end is something called the St. James Infirmary Blues. Uh, you, you, the lyrics read, folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary, see my baby there. She's stretched out on a long white table. She's so sweet, so cold, so fair. Let her go, let her go. Oh, bless her wherever she may be. She will search this wide world over, but she'll never find a sweet man like me. So another mm. possible interpretation for me, as far as I'm concerned, is like, if Wayne didn't die on that porch there, uh, maybe this is about him letting go of Amelia. And like exercising her ghost, like solving the case is in some way like letting Amelia go for him because so much of everything they were was, you know, caught up in this. And maybe, you know, if he survives uh, this, if he's not dead, then like he can just exist there with Henry, with Becca, with Roland and, and let go of the things in the past that plagued him. So Right. And I think also, you know, to look at, I think that's like a nice way of looking at it and um, in that sense reminds me a bit of like the ending of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind where, you know, they go through all this pain and everything and, 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 and Roland or Wayne rather, I mean, his body is causing him to forget, but he could also in some ways forget, you know, uh, as an act of volition and, and, uh, because there was a lot of strife there and it, it and the, the relationship did, um, center on this, uh, trauma this or for you know or, or this this tragedy um in some ways but like i think that was him also it could also just be him going back to the beginning and be like i would do it again i would relive it again in my mind and i'm going you know and i will you know because it was worth it um for for the having done it um which yeah. i think is quite nice so then i i just wanted to you know given that that's that's the finale i think we both are like generally positive on it um which is not necessarily the widespread opinion um I'm curious how you think this season works as a whole. Um, I think it was really good. I, I really, I, you know, I think it was maybe slow going in the beginning, but like that's kind of to be expected in some ways. Um, I think, you know, we, we don't need to keep more praise on the performances, but I mean, Herschel Ali just won another Oscar. So how about that? But, um, <laughs> um, but I, I really appreciate in, 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 
in these times that someone like Pizzolatto, who could so easily join his many brethren uh, in in the sort of hard-boiled writing world uh, and just be very grim about the world and very nihilistic and sort of um, really punish us with darkness. And, And this season is not without its darkness. Certainly it's violent and it's sad and all that. But I think that, you know, for the show to do this kind of to arrive at this ending um, or several endings, but one of them involving a happiness for Wayne and his family and, and Roland and for Julie and her family. And um, I love the thread of Mike carried through from childhood that there was always a decency presence in Julie's life, whether she knew it or not. You know, um, I, I just think that I'm, I'm very grateful that like the show is not a hundred percent despairing about the world. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is. I think someone on my Twitter feed responded to me saying something about the finale with like, I love the daring choice to bring like the happy ending back to prestige trauma or something like that. Like, totally. No, no matter what your interpretation of this ending is, it's not like a sad one. You know, I, you know, uh, as we discussed, it seems like Nick Pizzolatto wanted a little bit more time to tell his story. I actually think the season could have done with a little less. Um, we got eight episodes. I think we could have done it in six. And I think a lot of what gets in its way is this um, mystery box chasing like red herring stuff yeah. that, you know, keeps the Reddit community active and all of that. But I think it, it does a disservice to the um, the more adult drama that that the show really does well, I think. So not th- not that like mystery box shows are juvenile because I love a mystery box show, but like, you know, I-, I think some of the some of the ways in which it tried to obfuscate what was happening um, wound up being a little tricksy for its own good, if that makes any sense. So no, it does. I I see what you mean, and I think that um, you know, did we need each d- the digression with um, the teenage boys, the West Me- the West Memphis Three kind of illusions? I don't know, but I, I I get that he was trying to kind of talk about true crime and 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 not just the actual crime, but the sort of documentation of true crime uh, of real life crime stuff, you know. So I I get that he had those ideas in his head, but I don't know necessarily that you know because I don't really understand where Sarah Gadden's character, where the Eliza character, really sort of fit into this and this, you know. Um, I guess she was there just to reintroduce red herrings in some senses. Um, I guess it's a narrative device, you know, like in terms and he, of like yeah, and yeah. he done he done you know he starts off with the interview device for for the nineteen ninety storyline, much like first season of True Detective. So and I, I think he couldn't do that exactly for the whole season, so we needed something. Um, but maybe that's also a crutch that he could, you know, I, I know that he likes to dwell, you know, he likes to, to tell stories that have interlocking between the past and the future and the whatever, but like maybe there's a way, I guess, although I guess he didn't do that in season two and, it, and like that didn't work. So, well, also how much of this show, this season is about memory. Yeah. And so like, you need that sort of like reason to revisit the past, but maybe, maybe on like a second or third pass, it might've made more sense for him to be like talking to Henry about this or talking to Becca, you know, maybe this is part of like, you know, not to money, money morning quarterback, a series of television, but like, I I think eventually the Gadden thing winds up being a bit of a distraction from the heart of the story, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And adding in the affair with, yeah. you know, it's just like, okay. And like Gadden is such a good actress and she's, she has a high enough profile, maybe for people like us anyway, who write about this stuff for a living, but like where I was kind of expecting something more there, maybe that was part of the red herring thing. I don't know. But like, I liked her presence on the show. She's a good actress, but 
Um, as much as I like, you know, Ray Fisher, who's wonderful, really captivating to watch. Um, and in fact was really the only interesting thing about, um, Justice League. Um, so, you know, all these good people, I just wish that maybe their, their roles had fit a bit more snugly into, into the, the main kind of thrust of the season. Yeah. I think, I think some of the extra parts feel like they rattle a little bit. You know what I mean? Like you have characters like Alan, the, the, you know, the, uh, DA or whatever, the, the prosecutor that we meet early on in the season, then he just kind of disappears. And it's yeah. like, I mean, it's not like I need, you know, Alan's probably dead in 2015. It's not like I need him in 2015, but like, you know, there are just some care, like some side characters just feel like they complete their arc, like Mamie Gummer's character or the Brett Woodard character or Scoot McNary's character. Like those, those things feel like arcs and other things just feel like, rattly side bits and not because like I needed them to be the murderer or anything like that. You know, like I'm, I've gotten pretty good at this point of like letting go of bad theories once I figured out that they don't fit the story that's being told, but just, yeah, just tighten it up a little bit. I think, I think that's, that's, I think what I'm hoping for from like a six episode version of this rather than an eight episode version. Yeah. And I think speaking about bad theories, you know, it's just sort of interesting to think about early in the season when I was kind of like convinced that Amelia had something to do with it. And, and maybe that was like, in part out of some sort of, you know, ingrained prejudice, you know, about women characters or whatever. Um, and I, you know, I hope that to kind of think about that and not do that in the, f- the future, but I think something else, uh, you know, should this show go forward is, um, like, I, this isn't really a twist show, you know, right. yeah. it's, it's, it's like a mystery show. And so you learn things, but there's not, he's not setting up to like surprise you or upend what you think you've been watching. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really his bag. He's much more interested in the sort of internality of it and, and, and rather than the kind of plot mechanics. So, um, I think maybe like I was, I've just been trained to expect that from, you know, years of lost and M night Shyamalan movies. Yeah. And I mean, I think, uh, um, a reason to have that expectation. I mean, there, the thing, I think the thing that happened this season that we were the least fond of was, was a twist, which is Tom Purcell's sexuality. And we were like, what? This adds nothing to the story and so it just feels like it wrong and cheap you know and then i guess you could call the like julie purcell is dead no she's not sort of thing that happens in the finale like uh, a twist but like that would only really be a twist if these final this final part of the story had been two episodes like if you wound if you ended episode seven thinking she was dead and then you get, you find out in episode eight, she's not. But like the fact that it plays out over the course of one episode, then you don't really have time to be like, okay, well, that's it. Julie Purcell died of HIV, uh, AIDS in the nineties, you know? So, um, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think it's fun. I think theorizing is so fun and I don't mind theorizing. And I think your Amelia theory was good. I think that there was uh, textual evidence to support it, but I think you know, not to pat us on the back, but I think we also both did a good job of just like dropping it when we need to drop it and then not, and not feeling like the show had let us down because it didn't match our imagined version of it. Does that make yeah, sense? No. And yeah. I think that like, I, you know, it's funny been doing this podcast, uh, you know, cause we did the Westworld season, uh, where there was certainly a lot of theorizing and I, and I sort of said that that show reinvigorated me in the kind of theorizing after loss to kind of burned me. And it's like, you know, I, I think that there's some legitimate gripes against a show like Lost or True Detective or whatever or Westworld, like letting you down a little bit because they gave you too many red herrings or they kind of had a cheap kind of fix at the end. But past that, like, 
the show doesn't owe us much, you know, like, or like, you know, like it's kind of a, we kind of have to, I think, accept what we're given and sort of work with that and not sort of demand too much that it be something that like, you know, cause this is something that is made by a human and then filmed and then shown to us. It's not responsive, you know, right. Right, it's, a right. fix, it's static. So like, um, I think that maybe it's, it's a little bit too much to spend a lot of o- emotional energy being like, that it's supposed to be this way, you know? I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's fine to be like, to want a show to be something else, but uh, I guess the thing that I would push back on is when I see people being like angry at the creator for not giving them the ending that they expected. And I'm like, well, but okay, but that's the story they were telling. So it's not the story you wanted. Okay. Oh, well, but like poor you, but that's not the story this person was ever telling you, you know, they haven't betrayed you or, you know, misled you in some way. They just told a different story than you expected. So you saying poor you made me think that we should introduce new segment for our next like theorizing show like game of thrones where like we go through theories that have been disproved and before it we have like um livia soprano saying poor you play (laughs) (laughs) now it's time for poor you uh yes it will just be me talking about the sansa pregnancy theory every single week um oh oh boy poor you she was she was at the uh, oscar party Sophie. The VF Oscar party, yeah. Yeah, with Joe yeah. Jonas. Yeah, he was wearing all white. Um, yeah, I, I, I love, uh, blonde, blonde tattooed Sophie Turner. All right. So, I mean, that's, that, that should serve as a crossover ad for our podcast, Little Gold Man. If you don't listen to that, we had a great party report from Richard from the Oscars, uh, which was, was really fun to listen to. Um, anything else you want to say about True Tech? Well, I guess, yeah, I want to, I want to talk about really quickly about broadly, where you would put this, um, in the, the context of the three seasons. I, I think it's, I think we're on the same page on this, which is that it comes under season one, but well above season two. Yeah. I, I think, I, and I think that it's, for me, I don't know. I think there are aspects of this season that def, that surpassed the first season. I, I think that I liked the first season for its kind of atmosphere, but I couldn't follow that show. And maybe because I was like not watching it. Maybe it was on my phone or something, but like I had, I like the, all the theories about the Yellow King and all that. I couldn't really keep track of that. And maybe, maybe I liked that this season was a little bit more straightforward or a little, I mean, it wasn't straightforward exactly. It was a lot of, you know, shifting between time, but like I think it was just the right amount of kind of, um, extra textural stuff, you know, like stuff, but, but I don't know. So I would almost say I like this season the best. Um, I think it's possible, like, I agree with you that, that if I put this, uh, season second, it's a really close second. I think season one had the advantage of like surprise. Like we didn't know who Nick Pizzolatto was. And so like who, here is this like new creator that we could get really excited about. We didn't really, well, we kind of knew who Kerry Fukunaga was, but we didn't know like the extent to which, you know, I think he had done Jane Aaron's and Nombre, but like, the idea of like an auteur season of television wasn't really a thing. So to have like one director do a season of television was just like, like a shiny cool thing. And then we were in like the beating heart of the reconnaissance. And so like, it was just like all of those factors together, I think put season one in a place that is hard to unseat. That being said, I think what Mahershala Ali, as we've said over and over again, does in this season uh, exceeds anything else we've seen on this show. Um, so like yeah. that performance, I'd say is the best thing that we've seen from True Detective, but seasons overall, I probably would still put season one slightly above. So. Yeah. And I'm going to choose to, um, remember this as Marshall Ali winning an Oscar for this. 
<laughs> that's, that's what he won for, right? That's what he won for. I mean, isn't that what Matthew McConaughey won his Oscar for? Um, that, <laughs> it's funny. I was, uh, I was also thinking, ruminating on this on Twitter that that was our first, uh, Oscars at VF was the Matthew McConaughey Oscars. Uh, so, you know, that's time, right. yeah. time's a flat circle or what have you. Um, all right. Anything else you want to talk about, True Detective Wise, before we call it a day? Um, no, I think we are done. I think, uh, we did I, it. <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Um, stick around because we will have lots of Game of Thrones stuff, uh, that should be fun and, you know, less, a little bit, a little bit lighter, uh, which will be good. You know, we're getting out of the, uh, the hard scrabble Ozarks and, and into just like a fake place that doesn't exist. So we can, I think, be a little more, uh, fun about it. Um, yes, this is just tits and dragons, uh, mm-hmm. coming. Not, definitely not the biggest show in the r- world. No pressure on whether or not they'll stick the landing there. Um, let's just have fun with dragons and, and swords and stuff. Why not? Um, all right, Richard, until then, where can people find you? I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to know. I'm with my childhood sweetheart and, uh, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> that's all. But, uh, you know, but you can, I will be tweeting at Rylas, of course, and writing things for VF.com. Joanna, until we head to Westeros and the Beyond the Narrow Sea, where will you be? Uh, you'll find me pulling up outside your house in my car with my dog. <laughs> Muttering. <laughs> oh, oh, with your dog. You're not, you're not Wayne. You're rolling. <laughs> it's rolling. Yay. Yay. Oh, that's uh, a perfect ending. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I'm also on, on Twitter. I wrote this. We're over on VanityFair.com. We're really excited for this Game of Thrones rewatch thing we're doing. It's going to be really fun and we will see you all then. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.